name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what the telly doesn't tell you. This week, election reflection. After the Tories romped a by-election victory in Hartlepool and gained control of eight local councils across England, why haven't allegations of sleaze and cronyism hit Boris Johnson's popularity? We'll hear from Amelia Womack, deputy leader of the Green Party, who gained more than 90 seats. It's not filtered down to the doorstep. And I think that maybe that's a a sad reflection on politics that, you know, I wonder how many people expect there to be that kind of cronyism and that it's always happening and aren't able to imagine that there could be something better. The Scottish Greens now hold the balance of power at Holyrood after the SNP failed to secure an outright majority. But we'll hear claims that dark money was at play in the form of online advertising with unknown sources of funding that might have impacted the overall result. These third party campaigners, these campaigners who are normally nothing to do with these parties, but happen to be pushing specific political lines that chime exactly with political parties, they can really have a big influence. Plus, reflections on Labour and their leader, Keir Starmer. In order for people who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn and associate the Labour Party still with Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party needs to come out and say, this is how we're different. It's not good enough to just have Keir Starmer as leader to show that difference. There needs to be a defining characteristic of what Keir Starmer stands for and now what the Labour Party wants to do. All that to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times can report without fear or favour because we owe no allegiance to any media mogul, to any corporate interest or to any political party. We are funded by our subscribers, people like you. So if you want to support good, honest journalism, a subscription to our monthly paper, the Byline Times, costs just £36 a year. That also pays for this podcast, our brilliant news-breaking website and supports Byline TV too. You get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Now, the recent elections were seen by most mainstream media outlets as a victory for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, at least in England anyway, with the Tories winning the parliamentary by-election in Hartlepool and gaining or regaining control of eight local councils. It was mostly a poor night for Labour and Keir Starmer, who we'll be discussing later. But what about the Greens? They gained more than 90 local council seats across England and in Bristol they doubled their representation to become the second largest party. How do they build on that to make a breakthrough at Westminster where they still have only one MP, the same number they had in 2010? A question I put to their deputy leader, Amelia Womack. It's been such an exciting election. So we increased the number of councillors we have by 99 councillors across the country, even in places like Burnley, where we've got five new councillors, which is considered an iconic Red Wall area. And when it comes to a general election, we know that more people want to vote green and are putting their vote behind a party with a vision. And I think that that's what was important in this election was we had Greens working hard in communities, but we also had a very clear vision about the future of the UK, about a Green New Deal, about making sure that we tackle inequality while ensuring we stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. And I think when we have another general election, these ideas are going to resonate even further. 
one thing that I've experienced throughout coronavirus is that people want to hear more about the big ideas. Things like a universal basic income has been uh, resonating far more the last year than it had been before. And I think that when we look at our vote share now, where, what, where we are in Bristol West and in Sheffield Central, we, could, we would win those seats in a general election um, with the number of votes that we had in these council elections. So it's, we're, we're chipping away at this, the maths of it, basically, I can see that we will increase our seats and that there are big opportunities in the future and that people want better green representation. But you are still a long way from power, aren't you? And you are a political party. You're not a think tank. So how do you get from here to there? It's an important point of what Greens do, because what we provide is genuine scrutiny. When you look at Caroline Lucas, what she does is hold the government and hold the opposition to account. Where we look at the Greens in Scotland, where there's a proportional system, it was the Green Party there that exposed the exam results scandal by scrutinising uh, the policy, but not playing politics with it, taking action because it was the right thing to do uh, to secure the dreams of a generation, essentially. And when we are, we, we do need to get more seats. Obviously, a proportional system would be a shift change in that. But we are proving that we are beating this broken first past the post system. And people don't want green policies as if it was a think tank. What they see is uh, the promises of other parties on their leaflets. But what they see from the Greens is a to-do list. And that when we get elected, that we take action. And I think that the action that our councillors have provided, the action that our elected representatives have provided across the UK prove that when Greens get elected, they work hard to represent their communities. No one feels entitled to their seats because we work hard to get them. And it makes a real shift change in local politics and in national politics when we do get that representation. And more people are realising that if you vote Green, we can win. You have attempted to broker political alliances with a view to navigating the first past the post system in 2017, the Progressive Alliance. Labour didn't always reciprocate, though, did it, by standing down candidates in seats where you thought you might win. There was Unite to Remain as well. If there is to be a, a Progressive Alliance going forward, it would really need Labour in particular to take on board the idea of an alliance. There's no sign from anything I've heard or seen of Labour being interested in a progressive alliance with the Greens. As Greens, we always believe in a cooperative kind of politics. And I hope that the other parties look at these results and see that we are beating the first path of post system. But we'll always prioritise a cooperative kind of politics and be pushing for PR at every opportunity. A proportional system just simply means that every single vote will count, that every vote has a will have a say in the future. And I think that what we're struggling with in politics at the moment is that people don't feel represented by politics and don't see the change that it makes. A proportional system would be better for people throughout the UK and mean that politics genuinely does work for the people it claims to represent. Sure, I understand the end game for you is some form of proportional representation, which if the European elections of the past are any guide, would see you gaining significantly greater numbers of seats at Westminster. But we have first passed the post. And my point is that the key party that you need to engage in some kind of alliance is Labour, and they have no interest in that kind of alliance. 
I think that the people you should be asking about it is the Labour Party. We will always we we want to create a cooperative kind of politics, as I said. So as Greens, we we are going to keep working hard, keep trying to beat the broken system. Uh, I think if you want to see movement on a, any kind of progressive collaboration, we are always interested in having those those conversations of how we ensure that we have a better politics for everyone throughout the UK. I think the Labour Party probably are the ones that need to be asked the questions in this case. In terms of policies, anybody who read your election manifesto would say that there are a string of really quite radical policies. Uh, Interested in the carbon chancellor, the idea that 11 Downing Street would be occupied not by a conventional Chancellor of the Exchequer, but someone who would work to a carbon budget. Just explain that. I always think it's interesting when people call our policies radical because so often they're just rational. And at the moment, we are trying to face one of the biggest challenges of any generation with the climate emergency. And we know that to measure is to manage. And only by measuring what our impact on something is are we truly going to be able to manage that impact. There are so many parts of how we operate in the UK where decisions are made in Parliament that have an impact on our carbon emissions, whether that's on road building or a lack of investment in sustainable transport options. The list goes on in terms of where subsidies go, the investment in renewable energy. I think it's really interesting when we look at Scotland and, and their investment in renewable energy that has already created green jobs. And as the Green Party in Scotland have highlighted, there's opportunities to create even more. So by measuring and managing, I think we can make a, we, we can essentially make a much stronger kind of economy. Economists listening will understand the role of externalities when it comes to measuring our economics, those things that just simply aren't accounted for. And when you look across the UK at the moment, the flooding, the kind of additional impacts that we're seeing at the moment as a result of a changing climate that's creating more unpredictable weather, as well as the ecological destruction that has made our landscapes less healthy to deal with things like floodwaters, that comes at a cost. And actually, by managing our externalities, by managing our carbon, can we have that stronger kind of economy that will protect us now and for future generations? These are radical measures, certainly when measured against traditional mainstream politics, the politics not just of the Conservatives, but of Labour, the Lib Dems, the SNP, even. You want to remove GDP, gross domestic product, as the key measure of our nation's success, of our economic success. We will have a different set of measurements by which we judge our success as a nation. Yeah, I think that the coronavirus has proven that GDP is a terrible way to measure what's happening in a country. And things like measuring well-being, health, opportunity, it's far stronger to be measuring those the impact there. At the moment, we shouldn't have been measuring our GDP. We should have been ensuring that as few people were hit by coronavirus. It's led to so many deaths, so much grief. By measuring things in a different way, can we really measure what's important? And I think that there are few people who will say that politics is working right now, that the way that we are operating helps ordinary people. And actually by ensuring that people have a quality of life rather than us just chasing GDP, which is actually a fairly recent measure of the economy, that just simply isn't working. So let's build something stronger. Let's reflect on what people need and let's make sure that we are creating something better for everyone. You know, I look 
here in Wales, for example, and the failure of politics has just let down so many communities decade after decade. And people are fed up with political systems that they don't think see them, that don't feel like they exist within. And I can see why people feel that, because they are consistently being failed. Yet on the news, it's celebrated that the UK is somehow successful because of our GDP. What do you mean by the failure of the political system there? The two big things for me will always be we need a proportional system and we need media reform. Um, We need to be ensuring that everybody has power within our politics, that their vote does feel like it's counting, that they have a say and they feel connected to their politicians. And we should have a media that connects people to that politics, ensuring that we are communicating the best information for people. But beyond that, when I look at, let's take the proportional system as an example, Where I am in Newport, we've had a Labour MP for basically my entire life. I mean, Paul Flynn did incredible work. It's nothing against his work over his lifetime, as we tragically lost him a couple of years ago. But the fact that we're not a marginal seat means that we haven't seen the investment. We haven't seen the opportunity. We haven't seen our high street invested in. We haven't seen our community valued. And people feel left behind. We just need to look at those marginal seats and how more investment does end up being distributed to those areas because there's a a bias to them for political gain. Maybe that's an argument for people in Newport to vote Conservative then and at least get the attention of the Prime Minister, who presumably will be really keen to maintain and hold on to a marginal seat. Well, that's what people in Newport are thinking, that change is better than the status quo. And this election, I can't believe how many doors I knocked on where people were voting Conservative because they wanted to see change here in Newport, obviously with the Welsh Parliament, then it is a Labour government here. But even people saying that they like the Prime Minister, they think that the Labour Party are attacking him on not that I agree with them, but on attacking him on small issues rather than challenging him on the big problems. I feel like that's a, a real shift change within the last few years that there is that increase in vote because people people are frustrated. One area that you've identified for positive change has been significantly greater funding for local government, which since the coalition government's austerity has been very badly hit, and that would address social care as well, which is something that government after government has fudged. As Greens, we always think that there should be more power closer to people. And the only way you can ensure that you are addressing the needs of a community is if you are embedded within that community. There are many different aspects of that, whether it's about social care or even support for rape crisis centres, domestic violence. There are so many areas that have been cut, left underfunded and have created uh, wider problems within within our communities, because once again, they're just they're not seen on the, the national picture in the same way, but they are felt at the local level. So ensuring that locally we're able to deal with them is far better than working centrally to try and make a change that people aren't connected to at that point. On Byline Times, we've done a lot to highlight the cronyism of the current government, the corruption and the dishonesty of Boris Johnson. From what you're saying, that doesn't really seem to matter on the doorstep. He is popular, he is liked, and he is one of the reasons why the Conservatives are doing well at the expense of the Greens and the Labour Party. 
canvassing isn't always an accurate way of measuring but yeah from my experience it's not filtered down to the doorstep and I think that maybe that's a, a sad reflection on politics that you know I wonder how many people expect there to be that kind of cronyism and that it's always happening and aren't able to imagine that there could be something better and at the beginning of this I talked about a vision and I think that as Greens we do have a vision and I think that that's what's important right now, that we need to have that vision of a better kind of politics for people to buy into, that we need to be saying that the status quo isn't good enough, scrutinising the actions of the prime minister, but actually highlighting what, what could be better and how we make it better. I don't think that people are engaging with the conversation at the moment. And I think that we see that people will, will kind of rally behind supporting somebody who is quite toxic. I mean, you saw it in America with Donald Trump as well, that the more that you attack him, the more that their supporters rally behind him. And I think that what we need is to be providing a vision for people to rally behind of how politics should be, of how we beat the cronyism and how we ensure that politicians do work for people. That's Amelia Womack, Deputy Leader of the Greens in England and Wales. The Scottish Green Party is a separate organisation, but also made significant progress in the elections. Their eight seats, along with the 64 held by the SNP, mean that pro-independence parties have a parliamentary majority in Holyrood. But the Scottish Greens believe they were denied a ninth MSP by the existence of the similar-sounding independent Greens, who they think sowed confusion amongst voters and diverted hundreds of votes away from them. That wasn't the only curious feature of the Scottish election. Peter Gagan from Open Democracy has been identifying the trail of dark money which financed a massive online advertising campaign designed to encourage tactical voting amongst unionists. One of the big stories of the election was a kind of increase in tactical voting, at least in some places, between unionist parties. Historically, the SNP has really benefited, I think, from being the one voice on the nationalist side, whereas the unionist side has been split between the Lib Dems, Labour and the Conservatives. And we did see a lot of quite clever tactical voting on the unionist side over the election, and it kind of... It cost the SNP some key seats, places like Dumbarton, which is the most marginal seat in Scotland. There have been only 109 votes that Labour had won it by last time. This time, their majority went up to almost 1,500. Similarly, in kind of conservative seats in the borders and in Aberdeen, there seemed to be a big rise in the kind of combined unions vote. So, and it looked as if, you know, whoever was the best place to beat the SNP was winning votes. And in some ways, that's not surprising. But I also, before the election, there had been a talk about a rise in tactical voting more generally and websites pushing tactical voting. So I started looking around this. And I noticed, for example, the first thing actually I noticed was um, that uh, a good contact in this space mentioned to me, I'd seen it, uh, that Turning Point, the quite controversial pro-Trump group, American student group, Listeners might remember they've been in Britain for a couple of years, very close to Trump, very close to that whole, right by in America by a guy called Charlie Kirk, very, very much in the populist wing of the Republican Party. Well, I noticed they've been buying ads in, in Scotland. I was like, why are they buying tactical voting ads in Scotland? That's quite curious. And there'd already been some reporting on this in, in places like the Ferret, where, where I'm involved as well. And, you know, some of these names of people uh, I was familiar with. So I started just doing a lot of Facebook ad searching, seeing who'd been spending what. And I was aware as well that in Scotland there's been new regulations. So for the first time in an election in Britain, you have to have an imprint saying who's paid for an ad. And I was really surprised to see two things. One was a huge increase in, in groups that 
didn't declare their funders, buying ads, a lot of which were about tactical voting, a lot of which went out in the last kind of 48 hours of the campaign, which if anybody fans followed the Brexit referendum's very familiar strategy with digital ads, this is exactly what Dominic Cummings did. And at the same time, I noticed a number of these ads, a number of these groups were just flouting the rules. They hadn't said where who where the money was coming from. And um, that struck me as really kind of, you know, something that I thought was quite noteworthy, quite curious, like what was going on. And the other thing I noticed was a lot of the people who've been buying ads had previously bought ads, anti-Labour, anti-Corbyn ads ahead of the 2019 general election. So I've written a lot about that. I wrote about it in my last book, Democracy for Sale. And I also did a lot of work about that earlier this year, which culminated actually in John McDonald, the, Labour, the former Labour shadow chancellor kind of asking like basically tackling the government over this in, in parliament because what we saw then was huge numbers of ads and bought on facebook again by groups that kind of appeared from nowhere hadn't declared any donations and then disappeared so we were seeing what i noticed we were seeing the exact same things happening in scotland and pushing a very specific line about tactical voting so pushing people towards tactical voting unionist tactical voting websites and kind of like you know suggesting quite hard in ways where to vote. And these are non-party campaigners, so they kind of don't come under the rubric of political parties. So the laws are a lot more lax around them. It's much easier to get them away with this kind of, you know, I think it is essentially dark money because we don't know where the money comes from at the, at the back of it. And this is significant in the context of the Scottish election because the appeals for anti-independence voters to vote for whoever was most likely to defeat the SNP appear to have been successful, as a result of which the SNP failed to secure an overall majority. I'm always wary of saying that ads have a direct, like, kind of causal link. It's almost, any academic will tell you, I, I've studied this a lot and spoken lots of academics, so I'm going to, like, and I'm, I have a little bit of an academic side to me too, so I always go, I always stand back from going too close to that. But what we can say for certain is, one thing is that this was an election that took place in unprecedented circumstances of a pandemic. Normally you'd have people, as we'd say here in Glasgow, chapping my door, asking me for my vote, possibly then say, look, if you're not going to vote for me, vote for the unionist campaign. And they wouldn't say it publicly, but that might be what happened. That wasn't happening this time. So a lot of people were getting their information from the internet in a much, that's already happening, we know that across politics, but this is quite a specific context where that was really happening and this message of tactical voting we do know it was it was hitting home for for sure we can see it and what's fascinating as well is that it was happening without anybody overtly talking about it so you weren't seeing somebody saying you should vote for x in this constituency and we didn't even see candidates standing down we didn't see that kind of behavior it wasn't like the brexit party with the tories in 2019 that wasn't what was happening between labor saying conservatives in seats and i know from talking even to labor candidates in some of these seats and and, and voters of these parties not just nationalists that they were kind of concerned about seeing what they were saying. Like, where's all this, this coming from? And I think that's the really key thing with this is because just like the Brexit referendum, people remember back to the Brexit referendum, all these ads on Facebook from Vote Leave saying things like, you know, if you join, Turkey's going to join the European Union. Refugees from Syria are going to arrive. All the stuff about the bus. But there were specific messages going out on social media that were much more hard-nosed than the messages that were going out in public. And what we're seeing now in 2021 is... Parties aren't doing that as much. Parties are kind of wary about what they what they can and can't put on social media, especially here in Scotland where they have to have an imprint. But these third-party campaigners, these campaigners who are normally nothing to do with these parties but happen to be pushing specific political lines that chime exactly with political parties, they can really have a big influence. And you've mentioned 
Turning Point UK then, this Trump-supporting campaign group, paying for ads, can we say that for certain? Yes, so certainly they bought these ads. No, there's, there's no, you know, this is on. One of the craziest things is we only know all this because of Facebook's ad library. So we've outsourced our democracy so much that the only way we're able to follow this is because Facebook tells us what happens. And we don't know ultimately what the source of that funding is and who, therefore, is attempting at the very least to influence the outcome of the election in Scotland. Well, exactly. And, and under these rules, we should actually, you know, like, because it should tell you who's, there should be an ultimate name that's responsible for this. And this is where this problem comes back to time and time again. You know, I was really struck one of these groups that would spend £20,000 had no name attached to it at all. I was able to find out the name of the person because I contacted the Electoral Commission. They had registered with the Electoral Commission, so I was able to find out who it was. But at the end of the day as well, what's going to happen is we won't ever know where that money came from because just like I was able to show in the 2019 general election, there's a ceiling for de- declarations for third-party campaigners. We're not getting too technical. It's £7,500. So if you or I give less than £7,500 to one of these non-party campaigners, it doesn't have to be declared. They have to record it, but they don't have to declare it. So what these groups did ahead of the general election in 2019 was they spent about £700,000 and did not declare a single donation. So every single one of these donations was below £7,500. Now, bear in mind, to a man, all of these groups started within about two months before the general election, two or three months. So they claimed that from a standing start, they were able to raise collectively £700,000. And just to add a little bit more to that, so this is that's what they're saying. Also, all of these groups, except for one or two, say there was a dozen of these groups, they all disappeared the day before the general election. They didn't even post a Facebook update to say, well done. So imagine you ran a campaign. Imagine Adrian, me and you decided, we're going to start up a campaign. We did so well. We raised £65,000 to buy all these Facebook ads. Would you not think then at the end of this, wow, our campaign was so successful? Because a lot of these campaigns, they don't push party. They don't say vote for one party or they push issues. So in the 2019 general election, it was things like, anti-higher taxes, pro-landlord. So they were nominally campaigns. They weren't political parties, which is the argument they make. But if your campaign for landlords, your pro-landlord campaign, had raised £65,000, as one of them did, bought all these ads, talked about the grassroots support you had, at the end of it, would you not think, I've got a great campaign here. I can build on this. Let's take this further. No, they just disappear. They don't even post a status update saying, you know, election over, we did it, well done, everybody. (laughs) In terms of the recent Scottish election, how much spending was attributable to these dark money sources compared to spending which can be traced and identified? It's almost impossible to know in Scotland because Scottish elections are basically treated like local elections. So in a Westminster election, you have to declare your spending and donations weekly. In the run-up to the election. So you might remember, people like me do a lot of stories about this. So ahead of the general election, you can say, like, Peter Hargreaves, who runs on Hargreaves' land and has given the Tories X million pounds. And these become stories. There are lots of stories about this ahead of the 2019 general election, when lots of this kind of money flew into the Tory party. In Scotland, there's no rules like that. So for a Hollywood election, it's, it's like just any normal period. So declarations are made quarterly, and they're made... So we don't know any of this. So we'll only find this out probably way after the fact, which is another real issue with this. This is the only bit of this we can see. There's lots of other campaigners who didn't just buy Facebook ads. There's one campaign called Majority Scott, which drove vans and bought billboards all over Scotland. 
Uh, hilariously, one of them in my local Labour here in Glasgow had misspelled Nicola Sturgeon's name. This had support from RT from formerly Russia Today. We don't know what they've spent yet. I mean, it will probably be about a year before we know what they've spent. And that's a huge, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that's a huge problem. But the same for the main parties. We don't know how much money they've spent and how they've spent it because it's, for them, it, it's after the fact. So in a few months' time, as you start to look at it, you get a bit of a picture, but the full disclosure won't come until much later in the day. Where's the Electoral Commission in all of this? Well, this is a huge issue with it too. You know, I, I spoke to them yesterday and I speak to them a lot. They, they hear it from me a lot. And, you know, I, I think I probably in some ways have a good relationship with them. I think it is really an important part of this. But the, all of these things and all of the regulations and, and, and the way they're treated, so like is retrospective and very piecemeal. So the, the, the maximum fine for breaking British electoral law is £20,000. So in America, it's a federal crime. Michael Cohn, if you remember the Stormy Daniels affair, he got three and a half years in prison. In Britain, you don't even get a rap over the knuckles. So nominally, placing an ad on Facebook for a political campaign without an imprint is, is a breach of the law. It's, it's, it's a law, you know, it's electoral law. There's no expectation that any of these campaigns, I think, will ever be fined for us. Or if they are, they will be fined, I would say, £500, £600 tops, looking at the history of fines, because that £20,000 is a ceiling for the worst offences. So it cascades down from that. So Vote Leave, Dominic Cummings, they got fined £20,000 for like because it was an overspend of half a million and they were such a big campaign. So for things like this, it's not even a wrap over the knuckles. So if someone's funding, as we've seen, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 pounds worth of Facebook ads, a couple of hundred pounds and the wrap over the knuckles isn't going to do any any damage. And I think that's the real, this is the real problem. There's a lack of teach and there's a lack of care. It's not, you know, we are talking on the day of the Queen's speech when Boris Johnson's part of his Queen's speech is bringing in mandatory voter ID. You know, this is a problem that doesn't really exist in Britain. We had one case of impersonation prosecuted the 2019 general election. Meanwhile, there's huge gaps and lacunas in our electoral law there's no interest from government in doing anything about this. And if anything, they have threatened the Electoral Commission with disbanding them if they don't actually narrow the remit rather than widening it. And that's an issue, obviously, for the whole United Kingdom, but particularly here in Scotland with the potential of a second referendum at some stage. And already we're seeing campaigning. And unlike in 2014, when a lot of the campaigning was really just happening internally in Scotland, it's very clear this is going to be a UK-wide campaign when and if, if it happens again. Ultimately, do you think that this online advertising promoting tactical pro-unionist voting, some of it funding from sources that we still don't know, could have helped deny the SNP an outright majority? Yeah, it's very possibly. Oh, yeah, very, very possibly, to be honest, like, especially in some of these key swing seats. Yes, you could totally see this. And at the same time, what we saw was the rise of kind of like almost like fake parties on the list because we have this list, this huge big list. And we saw there was one group called the Scottish Liberal Party. That sounds like, it sounds like the Liberal Democrats, Liberal Party. They were giving straight arm Nazi salutes and wearing armbands and, and the Star of David in the Emirates in Glasgow. So how liberal do you think those guys are? We saw the Independent Green Voice. Very great, you know, lovely name, Independent Green Voice. Who doesn't like a bit of Independent Green Voice? Would you know that they were run by former British National Party members, including a man who's accused of Holocaust denial, which he denies, but that's out there. They won thousands of votes. They had a logo that they registered just beforehand that had green in capital letters. You know, a lot of people were going to vote Scottish Green, and this made a big difference in the list system because... 
The Scottish Greens lost out in a seat in Glasgow by less than a thousand votes, where independent Green Voice, who hadn't hadn't ran at all in the 2016 general election, won over 2,000 votes. In the south of Scotland, the Greens lost out by just 115 votes. Again, the independent Green Voice won, I think, about 1,700 votes. And we know that if you look at the other election results around Scotland, there wasn't some huge tilt to the far right. Jada Franson, the Britain First Leader, won less than 50 votes in Glasgow. I think it's a very fair question about how many of those people have voted independent Green Voice knew exactly what they were voting for. You Just to think about it, when I went to vote the other day, the ballot was two feet long, 22 limbs. Independent Green Voice comes way earlier than the Greens. It's a huge, huge, huge ballot. You know, that's, there's a real issue there. So again, you're seeing these ways in which dirty tricks and dark money can warp an election. Peter Gagan, whose book Democracy for Sale is a must read. I'm Adrian Goldberg and this is the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, the biggest losers in the recent elections, in England anyway, were the Labour Party and their leader Keir Starmer, who's already reacted by removing Angela Rayner as campaign coordinator and reshuffling his shadow cabinet. As well as the by-election in Hartlepool, Labour lost control of local councils in traditional strongholds Sheffield and Durham, more evidence of the crumbling red wall. Boris Johnson, it seems, was able to take credit for the COVID vaccination programme, but not blame for the exceptionally high death rate caused by the pandemic. He was able to take credit for getting Brexit done, but not blame for the problems caused since for fishermen and hauliers. So what is going wrong for Labour and Starmer? I spoke to Steve Evans, a long-standing councillor in Wolverhampton, which is still held by the party and Lauren Walsh, who lives in Gateshead and is a student at Durham. Lauren is editor of NEBeep and wrote for Byline Times about Labour's declining appeal in the northeast of England. Well, essentially, from what I've been hearing for years, not just after this period of local elections, it's been the Labour Party is not bothering to engage with key supporters. So where I live, for example, we have had like no contact from the Labour Party during the local elections. There's absolutely nothing. We had a manifesto from the Conservative Party, but the Labour Party was just stum. And essentially, people feel that because obviously the Labour Party knows they're going to get in here, that they're not even bothering to try. And I think now that the Conservative Party have sort of twigged on, essentially, that people in the North East and the usual Labour heartlands are annoyed at Westminster and annoyed at being left behind because there's been no change. Now that the Conservatives have sort of realised that this is an issue, obviously they've capitalised on it and got in there before Labour and started talking about, you know, levelling up, whatever that means to the Conservative Party, which I'm yet to see. They've essentially got on the messaging and the Labour Party is just way further behind than probably they should be. And essentially the argument is obviously Boris Johnson has the capital in terms of he was on the right side of Brexit for them voters. And the Labour Party has just not offered anything strong enough and not been strong enough in terms of communication, you know, where they get their key support, essentially. And it's not shocking that people are giving up when they feel taken for granted and feel neglected, even if the Tory government has been in power for 11 years. You know, they've been voting Labour and they haven't received anything from Labour in their eyes, apart from neglect and like abandonment, essentially. 
So the idea of levelling up, even though that's a pretty amorphous concept, has somehow struck a chord with Labour voters in the northeast of England who feel that it at least acknowledges their aspirations. I think that's definitely the point. So from my perspective, obviously, we've got loads of people who can do great things in the northeast from when we've left school, for example, and everyone who wants what is not factory jobs or shop jobs or anything like that, you have to leave to go and get these opportunities. You know, if you want to work for the government, for example, you've got to go. If you want to be in journalism, you've got to go. And I think people have realised that there isn't really anything here. We've had, obviously, from Thatcher, it's been a rapid decline and then it's just carried on declining. And I think no one's been talking about it because Tony Blair obviously moved the Labour Party towards more sort of London-centric and everything like that, which we've had. And people here noticed that. And now, obviously, the narrative, I think, has kind of been shifted back towards, ooh, what's going on in the northeast? Because the Tories have realised, obviously, that they can gain ground there where Labour is losing it because of the way the focus changed back then. And Steve, you're a member of a Labour-run council in Wolverhampton, one which has held on to control but has come under pressure from the Conservatives. Do you recognise the criticisms that Lauren is making? Yeah, I, I certainly recognise some of those. And I, I think it's disappointing for any candidates, regardless of party colours, that don't engage or campaign. And I see myself, and certainly in Wolverhampton, with seasoned campaigners all year round, you know, leafleted, knocking doors, on the telephones, whichever way you can do it. Of course, it was difficult with the pandemic. We wasn't allowed to go out and campaign till about six weeks prior to this election. But I do think there's different issues in perhaps different regions and people look to London, don't they, and say, you know, everything happens in London. You know, they'll have their own issues. London's not all full of bankers. And I do think some of the industrial cities, including my very own, you know, we have suffered. And people's aspirations, quite rightly, they do change. Long gone are the days when I left school and certainly my parents, you went into a good factory job. The reality is that some of those don't exist and people's aspirations and expectations have changed just like our holiday destinations have. You know, we don't all get to Butlins like we did in the 60s and 70s. People (laughs) want to fly abroad, don't they? And, you know, that's quite right. So I can certainly understand that. I just think in particular Boris, we've got to be honest, he's become good at politics. They've upped their game. And I think Lauren touched on it. They've seen an opportunity and they've stepped in. And I'm pretty sure if it was Theresa May that was still the leader, I doubt we'd be having a similar conversation. There's no doubt about it. From when he's been an MP, when he's been the elected mayor in London twice, Boris, I'll say it begrudgingly, but we have to acknowledge it, He's good at politics, ain't he? Interesting, though. Lauren mentioned the legacy of Brexit and he got the job done. But if you look at the end of World War II, Winston Churchill had guided the country through its darkest hour, to borrow the cliche. Nevertheless, he was turfed out in 1945 by a Labour government which had a broad, encompassing vision for a welfare state. Surely if Keir Starmer had been able to articulate an inspirational vision for Labour, then Johnson would surely have been vulnerable. 
I've been campaigning for 25 years on doorsteps. Every single election is different. And we can't ignore that Keir Starmer only took over 12 months ago when the pandemic had already started. If you look at the evidence, every single sitting government, Scotland, Wales and England, have all benefited from the pandemic. Just like, and I know what you say, the Second World War. But I don't think Winston Churchill was that popular. I think Clement Attlee was sort of like the home prime minister and running affairs while Winston was trying to make deals with other prominent world leaders. So it's markedly different. And I have to say, by the way, although my area voted leave in the referendum, nobody raised it on the doorstep with me. Nobody said anything about Brexit and Boris being on the right side. Equally, they didn't talk about Boris and Slees. They did say about the vaccine rollout. And it does seem to chime with people that, look, we're coming out of lockdown. Perhaps there's light at the end of the tunnel. And even our supporters were saying, we can't deny he's done a good job on the vaccine rollout, much better than any other country. And I think he got a bounce from that personally. Yeah, I think there's definitely been the case. You know, he's had that impact of obviously having a briefing every week where he personally comes and he talks and he's had that attention of the country as well, as well as the vaccine rollout and obviously being on the side of Brexit. But I agree, it's not necessarily the biggest issue, Brexit. It's just when the Labour Party hasn't offered anything in particular, like all of these issues with Boris Johnson, well, all of these things that are in Boris Johnson's favour, like being on the side of Brexit and the vaccine rollout and everything, that has been what voters have seen in Boris Johnson because the Labour Party hasn't really been messaging against Boris Johnson or the government and they haven't really proposed anything. Like you say, obviously, the post-World War II political sort of scene, really, like Clement Attlee literally then proposed the NHS. That is a massive vision and the Labour Party has an opportunity to do that. It is confusing as to think that no one's told Keir Starmer, you know, before we go to these set of elections, we should probably have some policies And I think Tony Blair this morning actually made a good point in Good Morning Britain. He said in order for people who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn and associate the Labour Party still with Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party needs to come out and say, this is how we're different. It's not good enough to just have Keir Starmer as leader to show that difference. There needs to be a defining characteristic of what Keir Starmer stands for and now what the Labour Party wants to do now that it seems they have a chance at least to try and make some kind of big, bold vision for the future. I agree with the points you've made. And uh, listen, I, I could tell you in December 19 at that election, we got battered. I was bruised and I'm a seasoned campaigner. Yeah, they take it on the chin. But I got a lot of abuse, again, from people who normally vote Labour saying, no, thank you, not this time. We don't want Jeremy Corbyn. They was reciting all sorts of things about him being associated with terrorists and he's a loony left. And listen, it weren't good. Uh, and we lost our seat for the first time in decades, just like people sit in the north. Wasn't nice. I didn't get any of that this time. I didn't get any abuse. And actually, people were saying he comes across as quite nice, Keir Starmer. And I think it's just been difficult. Don't forget, we didn't even know who was going to hold the elections. We wasn't sure. They got cancelled last year. It only got confirmed a few short weeks before that they would be going ahead. And of course, you can't just change the leader and say, we've changed. You've got to set out 
a bold alternative. You've got to give people a reason to go out and vote. When you're in the middle of a pandemic, I don't think it's right to keep attacking the government, especially when it's in some really dark places with huge amounts of deaths that sadly we had. But I think there's been a couple of occasions where the government got it horribly wrong. Kia, I think, was right on the money, like the circuit breaker, using half term. And a couple of weeks later, after Boris ridiculed him, saying Captain Einsight would shut the country down, he actually then come out and said, no, we need to lock down. It's the right thing to do. Throws in a few Latin words and it's our inalienable right to go to the pub. But, you know, we must do the right thing. And I've spoken to people and they know Boris isn't exactly honest. But they go, do you know what? Every politician lies. Sometimes, in my opinion, he's very disingenuous with, with the truth and the facts. He avoids a lot of things. I think you're right. We have to set out our vision. We have to give people a reason. I'm not sure that the Labour Party's had time to do that. Perhaps sometimes they're too busy, I feel, talking to themselves. Personally, I don't want to hear who's on the left, who's on the right. We're in the Labour Party. We should have one common goal, and that's to make everyone's lives better and set out how we're going to do that. Uh, and that's why it was so successful under Tony Blair. We haven't got to that point. We're still in transition, aren't we? That said, Steve, if you look at the political makeup of England now, because obviously Labour can't rely on the dozens of Scottish votes, which it did traditionally rely on, England is now problematic for Labour. There is, it would seem, an inbuilt conservative majority in the country or at least an inbuilt advantage to the conservatives do you think that labor should think about forming some kind of progressive alliance with the greens and the liberal democrats agreeing to stand aside in certain seats with a view ultimately to regaining power perhaps as part of a coalition and then rearranging our first past the post electoral system which favors the big parties and has traditionally favored yours no, I don't. That's a bit like saying my football team isn't quite good enough. We're going to be relegated from the Premier League. Should we join up with our local rivals? No. And I don't think the Greens, yes, they may have done quite well in this election, but that's relatively speaking from a very, very low base. And first past the post has always been the fairest vote, in my opinion. And it's up to us to up our game, not to look out for... Who can we join up with? You know, it's up to us to gauge and understand the mood of the country, different aspirations and expectations. That That's life as it progresses. And it's up to us to, to meet that and, and prove we can deliver on it and make people's lives and make the country better. I don't even think the majority of people in this country would really advocate for change in the way that we vote. And I think, again, obviously we're talking about these local elections and they are important, but they're not everything. And you can't translate the seats the Greens have won in the council elections into seats they're going to win in Parliament, for example. And they are completely different elections, parliamentary general election compared to the local council elections. But the reality of general elections, Lauren, is that parties like the Greens may attract many tens, many hundreds of thousands of votes. But with our first-past-the-post system, 
that translates currently into just one seat. Is that fair? Well, it's a good point. I've never really been able to work out whether or not it is like, you know, when I put my political and my philosophical hat on, is it really fair? I don't know. But it is just kind of the way that we do things, which obviously isn't the, the greatest argument. But I think, look, again, obviously, I don't think there's appetite for it really in the country, do you know what I mean? apart from, from, from like the Greens and the Lib Dems, because obviously it would benefit them. But again, like, I don't think it's something that is really an issue that people talk about either, because, you know, I don't think people would, would want to see the Greens in power, if I'm honest, you know. Lauren Walsh, editor of NEB in Gateshead, with Labour councillor Steve Evans in Wolverhampton. And yes, I am aware that Labour, under the leadership of Mark Drakeford, did keep control of the Senate in Wales. But that's a story for another day. Before we go, just a reminder to please subscribe to the Byline Times if you can. It funds this podcast, our website, and also supports Byline TV. You get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast. See you next time.